Welcome to No Rain Date, a community podcast about local news and people. No Rain Date is a production of Saucon Source LLC. For more local news and information, please visit SaucinSource.com. Hello, No Rain Date listeners. I'm Josh Popachak, your host for No Rain Date, your weekly podcast for local news and interviews in the Saucon Valley and beyond. Of course, I'm also the publisher of Saucon Source, and I'm here with the headlines for the week ending March 29th, 2021. We are a couple days delayed than we usually are with our podcast uploads, and that's for a good reason. We have a special guest on this week's episode, artistic director and conductor of the Bethlehem Bach Choir, Greg Funfgelt. And because we wanted to make the episode extra special, we are incorporating music of the choir into it. And that's why you'll hear the music throughout the episode. You probably noticed that our introduction was a bit different. We hope you enjoyed that. The choir is certainly close to my heart. I'm not a singer at all, as you can probably tell from the sound of my voice. (laughs) But my mother has been in the choir for decades, many years, and my grandfather was also a member of the Bach Choir of Bethlehem for many years until his retirement from the choir a number of years ago. So we will get into the history of the choir and learn a bit more about that from Greg, as well as what makes the music they sing so powerful in just a bit. But before that, we're going to go through the headlines. It's been a busy late March period, of course, here in the Hellertown area, and I want you to be apprised of everything that's been going on. Of course, we're going to talk about COVID-19. It's still out there. Cases have sort of plateaued in Pennsylvania and many other parts of the country. That's probably the result of a combination of things, but primarily the loosening of some restrictions, particularly in more the like southern and western states. And also just the fact that it's getting warmer, people are out and about more, moving around more, coming into contact potentially with the virus. Fortunately, deaths are decreasing, and a big reason for that is that many of the highest risk individuals for COVID have now been vaccinated, hopefully with at least one dose, but possibly two. We're seeing those numbers creep up day by day. I think nationally, about 12% of the population has had two doses, and something like 28%, approaching 30%, has had at least one dose. But that's nationwide. At the state and local level, it can obviously vary significantly. But we are seeing, in general, less difficulty, perhaps, with getting appointments. There are still challenges, don't get me wrong. I know many people remain frustrated about the lack of availability, particularly if they are older or have an underlying health condition. But it does seem that 
the state of Pennsylvania is trying to streamline the distribution of the vaccine a little bit better than was happening before. It was pretty fractured, you could say, and with thousands of of distribution sites, it seems. That's going to decrease to something like 300, I believe, and I understand that the goal of that is to speed things up. And if that results from it, then I think it's a worthwhile change. But that remains to be seen. So we'll continue to follow that. In the local news regarding COVID, we had a closure of a convenience store last week due to an employee testing positive for the illness. This was the Turkey Hill on Route 309 in Coopersburg. It was closed for at least two days, and that was for deep cleaning and sanitation. I do applaud the company for being transparent on its website about the fact that it was closed due to COVID. That's something that other companies did earlier on in the pandemic, and at some point they just stopped doing that. And I'm not sure that there was ever a reason given for that, but... I certainly think people have a right to that information and, you know, a a right to make their decisions about where they're going based on the public health imperatives of the situation. Turkey Hill uh, is obviously a smaller chain. They don't have nearly as many stores as some other companies do in the area, so that might be a factor. But interestingly, the sign on the door did not reference that there was a positive test result that caused some confusion and a lot of rumor mill type gossip on Facebook and online. So I am a big believer in honesty being the best policy and I definitely like to recognize it when I see a company holding true to that policy. So obviously it's it's been difficult with such a politicized topic for many companies to approach it in a way that is going to satisfy everybody, that's probably impossible. But when you're faced with the impossible, I think that's when honesty is often the best route to go. Turkey Hill obviously has reopened in Coopersburg and and everything's back to normal there. And, And we hope everybody stays healthy. Speaking of vaccinations, we also have a story this week about the Independent Transportation Network of Lehigh Valley. They're one of our advertisers on Talk and Source, so I want to give them a shout out and thank them for that. They have just announced that they are partnering with the Bethlehem Health Bureau and Meals on Wheels of the Lehigh Valley for a mobile vaccine service. Now, if you're not familiar with ITNLV, essentially they're a nonprofit organization that provides discounted rides for seniors and other individuals who have transportation challenges in the area. It's a larger organization. They they have other regions that they serve besides the Lehigh Valley. But as far as this latest initiative goes, they're going to be following the Meals on Wheels routes in Northampton County So that means they're going to be visiting homes in the Lower Saucon and Hellertown areas. If you know somebody that has been facing challenges related to transportation and that's affected their ability to get the COVID-19 vaccine, you definitely want to check out this story. I think it's 
going to be really useful for you. There's a link in it to more information. And also, ITNLV is hiring. They're, they're seeking drivers. That's actually what their ad has been for. So if you are interested in that position, there's a link in the story for that as well. Speaking of hiring, Wawa is hiring. We have a story about a hiring blitz that's beginning at the convenience store chain. And this is not confined just to Pennsylvania. It's in most of the states, if not all the states, where Wawa operates, including New Jersey, Delaware, Virginia, and Florida. They announced late this month that they are planning to hire up to 5,000 new associates this spring, and there are some bonuses, too, that go along with that. Wawa also is offering associates a bonus if they get vaccinated. I believe it's $75, but hey, if you're going to get vaccinated anyway, might as well enjoy a a $75 bonus for it. And that's, again, something that we've been seeing more of. More employers have been offering that. We saw Upper Saucon Township as a municipal employer offering a $200 bonus to their employees that choose to get vaccinated. Vaccine hesitancy, as it's often termed now, continues to be a challenge that public health officials are confronting. The percentages obviously vary based on geography, socioeconomic status, and a host of other factors. But in some places, it's as much as 40% of individuals that are saying they do not plan to get vaccinated for COVID-19 in the near future. And that's a significant minority. So obviously, that could have implications down the road for our society as a whole if it's not addressed. And all of these efforts by companies like Wawa sort of play into that, feed into that. In police news, we reported last week on several large thefts that have taken place recently at the Target in Richland Township near Quakertown. This is the Target on 309. Many people from the Saucon Valley area I know shop there. And at other stores in that shopping center, it's only about 10, 15 minutes away, and it's it's an easy drive to get there. During the month of March, there were three thefts committed by two different groups. And in total, these individuals shoplifted nearly $7,000 worth of merchandise from the store. So not really (laughs) sure what kind of in-store security Target has. Obviously, they have cameras everywhere. And the Richland Township Police released photos of some of the suspects in these cases, as well as their vehicles. In one instance, they said the group is suspected in a number of other thefts in New Jersey and the Philadelphia area. So to me, that suggests they're pretty well organized. Obviously, they're mobile. So thefts like that obviously occur at every every store and, you know, mall in America. But you do wonder, is it something that's happening more lately due to economic challenges some people may be facing? The economy continues to rebound from last year's disaster related to the pandemic. However, we're, we're certainly far from where we were 
before COVID-19 started, which was a little over a year ago, it's certainly possible that that is one factor in these cases. But check out those stories. The police are asking for the public's help in identifying these individuals who may or may not be from the local area, but it doesn't hurt to check them out and share on your Facebook or your uh, social media platform of, of choice. We've had some great stories lately on local food businesses, and the past week has been no exception. I want to give a shout out to Holly Hoyt, one of our freelancers. Holly sort of specializes in stories about restaurants, dining, anything food related. So if you have a business tip, story lead for us that's related to a new uh, restaurant or anything like that, feel free to shoot it to me, josh at sawkinsource.com, and I'll share it with Holly. It just has to be relatively local to the Northampton County or Southern Lehigh or Upper Bucks areas. But the the two latest stories that Holly's written, I think you're really going to enjoy if you haven't read them already. One is about the Aging Moon, which is actually a mobile charcuterie service, which to me that was a novel concept. Charcuterie obviously is a French word, and it's a, a board featuring a variety of artisan cheeses, cured meats, usually fruit like grapes, figs, sometimes different spreads, nuts, even dark chocolate. It's sort of an inventive type of dish, if you can call it that. I think that's one of the reasons I like it. It's it's a very personal kind of portrait or collage is probably a better word, made with food. And the owner of The Aging Moon is very good at what she does based on the reviews that I've heard and the photos she shared with us. Her name is Abby Hudock. She's a Moravian College graduate and she clearly has a passion and talent for charcuterie, cheese being the centerpiece of these boards. And I'm a big cheese lover, so I enjoyed editing this story immensely and looking at the photos, and I'm going to order one of them in the near future, uh, probably as a gift, but I'm, I'm going to have to follow that up with ordering one for myself, I think, because they do look delicious. Holly's other story is about a new restaurant called Mama Manitti's. The restaurant is new, however, the building that it's in formerly housed Ma Gia's, and before that it was, I believe, another Italian restaurant. It's located on East Susquehanna Street in Salisbury Township between South Allentown and Fountain Hill, but closer to the intersection where Daisy Hill Market is and Vallow's and Bolite, if you're familiar with that area. It's closer to that side of Susquehanna Street. The Minity family purchased the business recently from the former owners, and their dream has always been to have their own Italian restaurant. Family is very important to them, and that's expressed in the atmosphere and, of course, the food. They have pizza crust that's winning great reviews. Their gnocchi is house-made, and that sounded delicious, and they also have a variety of house-made desserts, so I think your mouth will really water when you see those photos. 
In sports news, Reef covered the Saucon Valley Wrestling Club's annual banquet, which was at Steel Club Sunday. It was another fantastic season for Saucon Valley Wrestling. They responded to the challenges of COVID-19 and came through, as they always do, with great leadership from head coach Chad Shirk and, of course, from the entire club. Their guest speaker at the banquet was... Mark Getz, who is a 1994 state wrestling champion, he had some very inspiring remarks for the for the wrestlers and Steel Club owner and Saucon Valley Wrestling Club president Dave Spurk was, of course, the master of ceremonies. Uh, there were a number of awards presented at this banquet, including the annual Mom Wow Award presented by Kathy Leibensberger, who is the longtime timekeeper for Saucon Valley Wrestling. She has been doing it for over 40 years, and Kathy and her brother Kurt Bowers always present that award in memory of their mom, who was a Saucon Valley Wrestling super fan, and her nickname was Mom Wow. So check out the photos from that special event. In other sports news, Reef also reported that Saucon Valley Youth Sports is going to host a spring flag football league. That's something different. And they had tryouts for that the other day. They are going to have six weeks of gameplay, which will start April 17th. There's more information in the story. If you have a child that's interested, definitely you want to jump on that right away. Before I close out with sports, I wanted to mention that we are covering Saucon Valley High School spring sports, making an effort to do that and to try and provide equal coverage to the different sports. So every week you should see a different sport featured in an article with a number of photos on SaucanSource.com. Last week we had a story about boys tennis, and this week, weather permitting, we'll have girls lacrosse. I have to emphasize that it's weather permitting because it has been a challenging time weather-wise as spring usually is. There's been a lot of wind and rain recently and the temperature's been up and down like a roller coaster. So we will certainly be doing our best to provide coverage of all the sports, but be aware that, that there could be some hiccups if Mother Nature decides to throw some curveballs at us, which uh, we know she likes to do. Of course, we're coming up on Easter, and the Easter events are happening, albeit differently due to COVID-19. Chris Christian was out at a special drive through event with the Easter Bunny and friends at the Hellertown Democratic Club on Sunday. He has some really cute photos of families that attended. Because of COVID-19, there was no outside mingling or anything like that. It was a stay-in-your-car event, and it was held in the parking lot of the club at the end of Thomas Avenue, and the Easter Bunny was there with a mask on to help reinforce the idea that we still need to wear them to help keep everyone safe. Every child received a goodie bag with, of course, Easter candy and some other treats in it. I know a number of businesses helped by donating treats for the bags and individuals too so big shout out to everybody that helped put that together it was a free event for the community and of course thank you to the volunteers at the democratic club you did a great job 
And I know people are very thankful for that. And there will be another drive through event this Saturday, April 3rd at 10 a.m. at Dimmick Park. This is in place of the traditional egg hunt that the Hellertown Historical Society normally holds. We will have coverage of that, of course. Chris will be there to get some cool photos. And, of course, the Easter Bunny will be there. So let's hope for good weather for that drive through event. Finally, I want to touch on development news in Hellertown. You may have seen a story last week that Johnny Hart wrote about a proposed residential development on Bachman Street in Hellertown. This would be senior apartments and connected, not physically connected, but connected institutionally with Saucon Valley Manor, which is located very nearby and is a senior living facility. The owner of Saucon Valley Manor, Abatia, presented his proposal recently to the Hellertown Planning Commission. This lot that he owns is located at 30 Bachman Street, which is just west of Main Street. And it's a fairly narrow parcel. It's bordered on the east side by Oak Alley and on the west side by Furnace Street. So it's got these narrow streets all around it, and that was an issue for some of the planners who expressed concerns about accessibility, particularly for fire trucks, and Dewey Fire Company representative also shared concerns about accessibility. This would be a substantial building if it were constructed on that site. It's a a four-story building and that area is primarily single-family homes, some twins, fairly small homes right now, so I think it would kind of dominate the immediate area. Atia would need variances in order to construct it because the zoning for that site currently is industrial and the Planning Commission voted four to two against recommending variances for the project, which caused Abraham Atia to state that he will pursue industrial development of it. So I cannot speculate about what that might include. Currently, it is a vacant lot. There is some parking on it that is used by a nearby business, which has a lease agreement to park some cars there. But it sounds like one way or another, it will be developed in the future. And this is a a trend that we're seeing throughout Hellertown. You often hear people say that Hellertown is landlocked. And that is the truth. There's nowhere for the development really to go in town other than on these few remaining, relatively few, open lots or else build upward. So the space crunch is on. And in the last few years, we have seen a lot of infill with single-family homes in particular being built on these large lots that may have been, you know, subdivided. In other cases, we've had townhomes built. It's a trend that's going to continue. The land is extremely valuable in town now. Hellertown is a place people want to live and work. And so there's heavy demand. Senior housing, too, is in demand. We're seeing the baby boomers age into retirement at this point. So that's only going to continue to increase as more baby boomers cross that 65 threshold. So that's my little uh, observation on 
the state of development in Hellertown, but don't be surprised if we have more coverage of this. And as a resident, I would encourage you to pay close attention to these issues. If you get a letter in the mail, you know, certainly try and make a point to attend the planning meeting, zoning meeting that it's referencing. You may need to attend that on Zoom, of course, but the borough makes it easy for you to do that. And once you're better informed about the issue at hand, you can voice your concerns if you have them. But the point is to be informed in the first place. And when we're certainly doing our best to help the community stay informed, but we don't always get to everything we try. If we miss something or you know something coming up, please give me a heads up, josh at sockandsource.com. Never hurts to, to get a reminder from somebody who, who sees something important uh, in the future. That's our roundup for this week. And next we will have our interview with Bach Choir, uh, Bethlehem Artistic Director and Conductor, Greg Fumfeld. We'll see you again next week. Here at Sock and Source, our mission is to provide information and make it as available as possible to the people in our community. A large part of that is a public service, and we're grateful for the support we have from local advertisers because that revenue helps keep the information flowing to you, our readers and listeners. Local news production does cost money, and that's why we've also introduced a voluntary membership option on Sock and Source, and we'd like to tell you a little more about that. Essentially, the membership is a recurring monthly contribution that shows your support for the work that we're doing. It helps guarantee that the information will remain free and accessible to you as well as to others in our community, and it also helps fund our future growth. Sock and Source is growing and we're expanding our coverage area. The more support we receive from the community, the better coverage we can provide and the more useful the site will be to you. So that's why we would invite you to visit our membership page on the website sockandsource.com. You can do that by clicking on join under my sock and source, which you'll see on the right side of your screen if you're on a desktop or at the bottom of any article page. You'll see several membership options, including a monthly membership for $7, a four-month membership for $25, or a yearly membership for $70. These are strictly voluntary contribution levels, and they're not any part of a paywall. There's no requirement to contribute, but we are grateful for those who have already done so, and we hope that you will consider purchasing a membership in the future. Doing so is quick and easy. You can do it securely online, and you can cancel at any time. Thank you again to all our current members, and thank you for considering becoming a future member. It's my pleasure this week on No Rain Date to welcome our interview guest, Greg Funfgeld, who is the artistic director and conductor of the Bach Choir of Bethlehem, an organization that is near and dear to my heart. My mother has been a member of the Bach Choir for over 45 years, and my grandfather was also a member for many years. So I grew up around the choir and the music of Bach and wanted to share that with our listeners and share more about the the choir itself so thank you for joining us greg 
I'm delighted to be talking to you, Josh, and I have great respect for both your grandfather, Howard Cox, and your mom, Martha. She's one of my favorite sopranos in the choir. She's a, a really superb musician and a wonderful human being, so I'm, I'm delighted to be talking with you. That's very kind of you to say that, and, and as we were discussing earlier, we'd love to have I'd love to have my, my mom and my grandfather on a future episode to uh, talk about their combined years of, of membership, which go back to the 60s, really, I guess, with my grandfather. Well, I'd encourage you to do that. I think that would be a fascinating interview. I certainly would want to hear that myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I know they have some, some stories to tell, especially about the, some of the trips they were on. I know in the 70s, my mom went to Israel with the choir and Germany, So and my grandfather too, of course. So, And the travel that the choir has engaged in over the years is, is something I want to touch on with you a bit later on. But yeah. I wanted to start off just by briefly highlighting the history of the choir a little bit for our listeners who may not be familiar with it. They've probably heard of the Bach Choir of Bethlehem because it is a well-known organization in the area, but it's actually the oldest Bach Choir in America. It was founded in 1898. It's known for a lot of firsts especially in its early years. They gave the first complete American performance of Bach's Mass in B minor in 1900. That was considered sort of a landmark performance at the time. Over the years, the choir has grown and become really an institution in the Bethlehem area. And Greg, you joined the choir in 1983. Is that correct? Correct. Yep. So we're going on 40 years here, and I want to highlight the fact, too, that you're just the sixth conductor of the choir in almost 125 years. So that says something, I think, too, about the choir and how, how much devotion it inspires in the people who are part of leading it. Would you say that's correct? Yes. Well, I think it inspires devotion in the singers themselves, we have many singers like your mom who have been part of the choir for decades. And I've always thought of your mom, and I've talked with her about this, because I think singing Bach is one of the best things you can do for the voice. I think Bach and his music, singing it well, contributes to vocal health and well-being. And your mom is an example of that. I mean, she's the first soprano still has these beautiful ringing resonant high notes but i think singing bach has given so many singers greater vocal health it is really good for the voice it's demanding mm -hmm. it's certainly challenging and rigorous but i think the benefits are are considerable hmm. so yes i'm honored to be the sixth conductor since the choir was founded in 1898 I never intended to be the longest tenured conductor. That was not a goal uh, to which I aspired. I always felt that that honor or distinction should remain with Eifer Jones, who was the third conductor of the choir. But things have evolved in such a way that it has just been a wonderful thing to stay here and to work with the choir. Our programs keep evolving, new initiatives, our audiences are growing. We enjoy some really wonderful support from around the country, and 
since the pandemic, um, we've now got followings in many parts of the world, and so that's been one of the benefits of all these different circumstances. But anyway, I think longevity also is in our audience. We have guarantors who are supporters of the choir and audience members who have been with us, again, for decades and for generations. Mm-hmm. People bring their children and then their grandchildren, and so there is a tradition of participating in the Bach Choir and the Bach Festival in many families, and it's 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 very inspiring to, to me as the artistic director and, and to all of us associated with the Bach Choir. Yeah, I definitely appreciate that that sense of tradition that has shaped the choir for for generations going back to 1983 the festival was still the main focus and and it continues to be a huge focus the annual may festival but as far as other events and programs and things like that my understanding is that there wasn't a lot of that at that time the focus was still pretty narrow and it had stayed that way for a long time You've sort of overseen the broadening of the scope of, you know, the choir and its reach. Is that something that you sort of foresaw when you first were hired, or is is that something that sort of developed organically over the years? Well, I, I think it developed organically, but I will say when I started my work with the choir, the choir was singing the May Festival, which was two identical weekends, a series of concerts on two back-to-back weekends in the month of May. And then they would sing at one Moravian church Christmas Vespers. And they would do maybe two or three pieces at the Christmas Vespers. And and that was the season, limited participation in the Christmas Vespers and then the two identical weekends in May, which is certainly an ambitious undertaking. But I felt like the choir, they were raring to go. I mean, it was like a thoroughbred racehorse (laughs) that was just in a fenced-in pasture and never really got to run. It was an analogy that I've used. And so the fortuitous thing, I started my work in 1983. And of course, 1985 was the 300th anniversary of Bach's birth. He was born in 1685 in Eisenach in Germany, and so this 300th anniversary of his birth was an occasion for worldwide celebration and observation. And so what we did is we decided to have a year-long, again, celebration and observation of this birth. And so we invited David Wilcox, Sir David Wilcox, from the London Bach Choir and King's College in Cambridge one of the great choral people in the world at the time. He's deceased now. But we invited Sir David to come in May of 1985 and and be the guest conductor for performances of the B minor mass. Hmm. We also that year invited a French organist named Marie-Claire Alain, who was a renowned interpreter of Bach's organ music. And Marie-Claire came and gave a concert And then we did a pair of Christmas concerts to celebrate that, and we did a performance of the St. John Passion in March of 1985. The St. John Passion had been heard for the first time in America in Bethlehem in 1888 
by a group called the Bethlehem Choral Union, which was conducted by J. Fred Wally, who founded the Bach Choir and was its first conductor. So there was this incredible connection, St. John, and that American premiere in Bethlehem. Hmm. So we had Marie Clark come and play an organ recital in October. We did Christmas concerts in December. We did the St. John Passion in March, and then the festival in May with David Wilcox as the guest conductor. And so this was again part of a worldwide celebration of the 300th anniversary of Bach's birth. And after that, it was that was received with great enthusiasm. And we said, well, now, what should we keep doing? So the first thing we decided to make a part of our annual season was the Christmas concerts. We used to do two in Bethlehem. Now we do one in Allentown on Saturday night, and then the one in Bethlehem is on Sunday afternoon, usually the second weekend in December. And those have become a very significant part of Christmas celebrations in, in the Lehigh Valley. So we're very pleased about that. From there, you know, I like your word organic. Yeah, things just sort of evolved, I would say, in an organic way. We started to do either the St. John or the St. Matthew Passion every year during Lent, usually in the month of March. That has evolved now so that the spring concert is not just the two passions, but other music that Bach wrote for Easter and Ascension. And since we started doing composers in addition to J.S. Bach, we've done all kinds of things. The Brahms Requiem, Mendelssohn's Elijah, you know, a, 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 a real spectrum of, of music. So the season has evolved, and of course then came Bach to School, our educational outreach program, more recently, Bach at Noon, our series of free concerts on the second Tuesday of the month. So, you know, things just kept happening and evolving in ways that seemed fortuitous and kind of um, the ongoing work of, of the choir. And, and of course, I think one of our goals was to give this music to as many people as possible, to share it open as many doors as we could, and take it out into the community. So we started doing concerts in Allentown. We did a concert at the State Theater in Easton not long ago. We do Bach to School every year for every third grader in the city of Easton, every third grader in the city of Bethlehem, and every fifth grader in the city of Allentown. We do Bach at Noon in the summer in Allentown. I know I'm getting a little further afield, <laughs> but so we just wanted to open doors Mm -hmm. to the choir, to this music, and, and things just kept evolving. Certainly once you open that door and, and expand things a little bit, yeah, I think it, it shows people that, wow, well, they, you know, they can do more than just twice a year and clamored for more, no doubt. Well, and I also, I think that the, the average age of the choir dropped from when I started. The choir got... I think more refined, more skilled. It became a little smaller under Eifert Jones. It had grown to almost 300 singers. Hmm. When I started, there were like 196 singers or 194. Now we're just under 90. So I think we're true 
to our roots, which is, you know, that of a, of a community choir. And I always tell people the Bach choir is what we call an amateur choir. And the word amateur, by definition, means people who do it because they love it. So, I mean, your mom is in many ways a professional musician. She's a church musician. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of church musicians. We have music teachers. We have university professors, composers, musical scholars. We have all kinds of professional people, professional musicians in the choir, but we don't pay any of the singers. And so it's an amateur choir, people who do it because they love it. And their level of skill keeps going up and the level of talent coming into the choir people from major universities and colleges around the country who come with tremendous backgrounds in choral music and a lot of singing so we're very fortunate that the level of talent keeps getting better and um, the commitment is very strong and so you know this organic evolution keeps going that's a really important point that I'm glad you mentioned that the fact that the singers, the members are volunteers because like you said, the level of talent is so high and the time commitment is significant. I'm sure many people would, you know, think, well, they must be paid, you know, for that. But can you talk a little bit about the process of becoming a member? Obviously it is selective and you, you must love to sing, but you must also have talent. How does that normally work? Do you have auditions at a certain time of the year? And and how can people who are interested in potentially auditioning learn more about that? Yeah, well, we have auditions every summer, usually in late August or early September, depending on I mean, we put announcements in the newspaper. People go to our website, which is bach.org, B-A-C-H dot O-R-G, and information is there. And so we have, we schedule appointments for auditions, and the singers come and they're asked to bring two pieces of music, a song or an aria, sometimes even a hymn or an anthem they've sung maybe in their church choir but two pieces of music of contrasting style. And I listen to that, and then we do some vocalization so I can hear the voice in its lower and upper registers, make sure, you know, if somebody says they're a first soprano, they really are a first soprano or a first tenor or second tenor. So we make sure that they're in the right vocal register. And then I always tease people, everybody's favorite part of the audition is sight reading. because we have to prepare a really significant amount of music in the course of a year. And so sight reading is a very important skill. If you can't read music, you have to be a really quick study or you're just not going to be able to keep up. Mm -hmm. And so we try to make sure, because the worst possible thing would be to have somebody come in the choir and they end up frustrated or feeling like they just can't keep up. And so that sight reading part of the audition is very important. And it's it's amazing. I mean, some people come in and, you know, they can sight read brilliantly. And sometimes that makes up for maybe what you would say, well, maybe this isn't the most stunning voice you've ever heard, but they have a, a very nice voice, but they can sight read, and that helps facilitate the learning of the whole choir. So, you know, 
I mean, we have some gorgeous voices, and, and we have some people who read beautifully, some people who do both. It's always, for me, it's a lot of fun. I think for the singers, it's a little intimidating because <laughs> mm-hmm. you come in and it's a one-on-one and, and you do this audition. But I, I love hearing singers. I, I, I never get tired of the human voice and its infinite variety, all of its different colors and sounds and timbres. I, I mean, I just, I just love the human voice. So I enjoy the auditions tremendously and and I love hearing singers come in and and I think oh I, this has got to be somebody we have in the choir you know that's that's an exciting moment for me right I'm curious as you're listening to somebody auditioning are you thinking I mean you're hearing them sing by themselves but they're ultimately singing as part of a group so are you thinking how are you know they're you know what the other singers in that section sound like are you kind of envisioning how they will they will blend together well it's really important because sometimes you'll have somebody come in and they have a huge voice and maybe you know a lot of vibrato which is great for some music it's not always great for baroque music or you know they've just got you know an incredible instrument but it's not a blending instrument you know it's just they're meant to be a soloist in some other capacity but we need what, what I call choral artists. I call them choral artists. They're singers who have to sing. You know, we have, let's say we have 14 first sopranos. And those 14 first sopranos, when they sing, they have to sound like one voice in a section. I mean, now that voice is not an individual human voice, but it's, it's one, let's call it a superhuman voice. And it's got color and resonance and beautiful quality. It's got high notes, but low notes, and and it blends together so that those 14 singers, or let's say we have 12 baritones, you know, and they they have to blend because what you don't want is a choir that sounds like all individual voices. I mean, beautiful choral singing is blended singing. You know, I say to the singers, listen to one another, listen and blend your vowel sounds, make sure your vowels are unified, listen to the pitch, make sure you're in tune with the other singers around you. And so singing in a choir is, it's like a team sport, you know, as opposed (laughs) to maybe, you know, being a tennis player where you're the star out on the court, you know, and you're duking it out with the other player. But, but singing in choir is a team effort and, and you have to blend yourself into that section that ensemble and that's that's a special skill so that's what we're looking for that's very good to know what is it about box music that you find timeless and do you feel the same way about his music as you did when you first started as the artistic director and conductor i'm sure you've obviously become much more knowledgeable about it, but as far as your appreciation for Bach and and the timelessness of his music, how has that changed over the years? Well, you know, one of the things I tell the kids in Bach to school is that if you look up the word Bach, B-A-C-H, in a German dictionary, it means brook or stream, like a little stream of water or a brook mm-hmm. of running water. And it was Beethoven who came later after Bach 
and he said his name should have been Ocean. And, you know, I think that's true. Box music is, is, it's an epic force in the world. I mean, he wrote so much music. And when you think of how he had to do it, you know, I tell the kids putting the pen in the ink and writing a few notes on the page and then putting the pen back in the ink, writing a few notes. I mean, it was a labor-intensive job. And, I mean, it's just extraordinary. So, you know, what do I find interesting about Bach? I would say about just about everything. I mean, I think he wrote some of the most beautiful melodies ever conceived in, in humankind. Uh, his, his polyphony, the harmony, the way the voices of the singers and the instruments come together. His rhythm is extraordinary. I mean, it can be so soothing and, and gentle and rocking. And the next minute, it can be so jazzy and upbeat and syncopated and, and vivacious. And, you know, you just feel like you can't sit still. You're, you're your toe has to start tapping or your your body just starts moving his inventiveness you know what he did that no one had done before him and most people haven't done since i mean the the way he puts certain instruments together and certain voices and certain harmonies you know the creativity the genius it's just it's just astonishing i mean so and and how has my appreciation evolved over these last 38 years, I mean, you know, I would say you just become more and more filled with awe and wonder, and you feel like you never really completely get it all. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, Bach is, he's bigger than all of us, and he's smarter than all of us, and he challenges us to be our best selves, and that striving is what I think energizes us, and that's Part of where that vocal health comes from, the, you know, I mean, people who think about this stuff, I think it, it sharpens the minds of people. It engages their hearts in a way that a lot of music doesn't. I mean, I think it's, a, it's kind of a, a total package of the heart and the head, the spirit. It's, it's just an amazing body of work. The inspiration is infinite. <laughs> Yes, yes. I mean, we often hear hear classical music described as, you know, sort of brain food, but I would say then that, you know, Bach is probably the most nutritious because <laughs> it's it does have that genius quality to it and was was it appreciated? Was he appreciated though for the genius he was in his lifetime? In his or- own lifetime. I, yeah, I, he had a tough life. I mean, I think a lot of the church fathers they for someone who was as forward-thinking as Bach was. And, I mean, some of the people thought his music was, you know, uh, sometimes too operatic, it was too daring, it was too innovative. And, you know, it's like, like that old saying, a prophet is without honor in his own town, or, you know, the world maybe wasn't ready for him, although, you know, certainly there were people who recognized his genius. But I think his life was a tough one, and it reminds you, you know, of the value of perseverance and keeping your your eye on the important things and following the spirit that leads us all, you know, I mean, and, and I think Bach did that. I think that's one of the ways he inspires us. And he was quite prolific, too, right? So he must have been fairly driven to 
Oh, yeah. goose. Well, he wrote over 300 cantatas for the church, and he wrote several dozen secular cantatas, which were more like entertainments, sometimes uh, for birthday cantatas for royal personages. You know, there's the coffee cantata, which is kind of an entertainment. So, And then there are the six Brandenburg concertos, the four orchestral suites, 15 or 18 harpsichord concertos. There's just, you know, a, a ton of organ music and vocal music. The passions, the oratorios. I mean, it's it's just an unbelievable body of work. Really, mm-hmm. quite extraordinary. I want to talk a little bit about the other musicians who help support the choir and bring Bach's music to life. And those are the soloists and also the the orchestra. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about? the history of those musicians and their involvement with the choir. I know that some soloists have gone on to become very, you know, world-renowned even after performing with with the choir. The instrumentalists are all top-notch in the world, so I'd love to learn a little bit more about, about their backgrounds. Well, our soloists are major international professional singers. Many of them sing, as you said, all over the world. They sing with some of the top Baroque conductors, but some of the top conductors, period, and with major symphony orchestras, opera companies, you know, and they they do a great deal of recording and touring. And one of the great things is when they come to Bethlehem, it's an inspiration to us because they're working in a wider sphere of influence, shall we say, and they're experiencing things in, in music and in scholarship, in performance practice. And so I always say to the choir, listen, and you can learn so much just by listening. I had one singer come in for their re-audition, because once you get in the choir, there's a re-audition required every three years. And one singer came in, and he was so musical. His singing was of such a high order. And I said, I said, how did you become so musical he said i listened to the soloists Hmm. and it was just such a simple but profound thing because not everybody who listens hears in the same way and this singer i mean it was just extraordinary that was such a high level of musicianship and artistry and i said you know to what do you attribute this and and this person said i listened to the soloists Hmm. You know, it's it's like that old biblical verse, if you have ears, let them hear, you know. And so you can learn so much from listening to these singers, and the interaction is, is so potentially rich. And, and our orchestra, I would say it's the same thing. I mean, we have, I think, some fabulous players who live right here in the Lehigh Valley who are part of our orchestra, and then we have players who come... Our concertmaster lives in Washington, D.C. Our principal oboist now lives in New York. She had been living in New Hampshire where her husband taught at one of the prep schools up there. Our principal cellist lives just outside of Manhattan in in New Jersey. But we have players from Delaware and uh, Philadelphia. I'm trying to think. Our principal viola player teaches at Duquesne out in Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. So we have people who make a commitment to come and be part of the Bach organization who are experts in their field. I mean, many of them have degrees 
in in music. They have college jobs, university jobs. Our our continual keyboard player Charlotte Maddox, she has a DMA in in baroque music from Stanford University. So you know these are people who are teaching in very high profile college and university jobs. They're performing in in lots of different venues with different orchestras, and and like the soloists, they come with a tremendous experience, and so it enriches everything that we do. You know, my feeling is. If you want to be a good leader, the best thing you can do is get the strongest people to work with you and be around you. You know, so when I'm looking for a concertmaster or a first chair, you know, player, I, I want the best possible people. You want people who are going to, you know, stretch you and challenge you in in the most positive ways to be the best person you can be and the best musician you can be. And so I think our orchestra players do that, and they love playing together. I mean. The Bethlehem gig is a gig they really look forward to, and I mean, you could talk to any one of them and, and ask them about it. But there's again this kind of devotion because the music of Bach inspires it, and then the tradition in Bethlehem is so rich, and it, it's like a deep well that we all drink from. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. what's been going on here? The first performances of the B minor Mass, the St. John Passion, the Christmas Oratorio. You know, the history here. We had one of our gala concerts in the fall a couple of years ago. We've had the Japanese Bach Collegium here twice. And these are young musicians from Japan. They're conducted by a venerable, wonderful conductor whose name is Masaki Suzuki. And they've been to Bethlehem twice now. And these young Japanese musicians, they walk around downtown and they see buildings that were built while Bach was still alive. Hmm. And these buildings were in use while Bach was writing his music in Leipzig. And, and, and they're just agog, you know, they're, they, they're like slack-jawed. Hmm. They can't believe. And then they hear the history. You know, Yo-Yo Ma came to play the six Bach cello suites, and we sent him a bunch of literature on the choir and the history. He had read it all before he got here, and he couldn't believe it. He said, I, I just can't believe what's been going on here. And, you know, it's, it's a story I love to tell and, and we love to talk about, but it's a very powerful story. It's a dynamic story, and it's a, it's a very important part of musical history, not only in America, but in the world. The earliest known example of Bach's music being sung and played in the United States goes back to 1823. Hmm. The Moravian church and the Moravian community had a copy of Bach's cantata number 80, which is the famous A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And this was published in Germany in 1821 And in 1823, there's a handwritten copy in the archives of the Moravian Church, and there's a bill. The organist at Central Moravian Church copied the music out and was paid. There's a receipt for that, and these parts still exist. And as far as anyone can tell, this is the earliest known example of Bach's music being sung and played in the New World. Hmm. And what's amazing is this predates by six years a performance of the St. Matthew Passion that Felix Mendelssohn conducted in Leipzig, which was considered the rediscovery of Bach's music in Europe. 
So what's happened in Bethlehem? I mean, the connection of Bethlehem and Bach is really quite extraordinary. And um, we, we try to tell these stories all the time to anybody who will listen. It really is, it's just something, you know, it's yeah. really something. It's sort of like musical archaeology in a way. Yeah, something like that, yeah. And and yes, I, I mean, I would be remiss if I didn't, if we didn't highlight the connection, of course, between the Moravians and the formation of the choir, because the music culture of the Moravians in Bethlehem was tremendous, and J. Fred Wally was a Moravian, correct? And, and so it's he was the of... organist at the Moravian Church, and he went to Germany to study. And he studied with a German composer named Reinberger, who was a highly regarded Bach interpreter. And he came back with a fire in his belly to get the Bach Choir of Bethlehem going and to perform the B minor Mass. And the group that I mentioned before, the Bethlehem Choral Union, they dissolved. You know, he had done the St. John Passion with them, and he said, now I want to do the B minor Mass, and apparently there's a, there's a wonderful first-person account of this. It says they, they looked at the music, and the quote is, their ardor wilted. Hmm. And so J. Fred said, well, it's the B minor or it's nothing. And so the choral union dissolved, and with a woman named Ruth Porter Doster, in 1898, they founded the Bach Choir of Bethlehem, and on March 27 of 1900, they gave the first performance of the B minor mass. And, you know, that's a singular bit of history right here in our little town of Bethlehem. Yes, yes, absolutely. As far as moving back to the present day, the last year plus now has been filled with challenges due to the COVID-19 pandemic, and certainly live performances have been particularly impacted due to the fact that it's a respiratory virus and singing projects aerosols more than speaking. So I'm sure that, you know, information is you know still being developed about the virus, but that's been a tremendous challenge for all choral groups. How has your response sort of evolved, and is it difficult at this point to sort of pick up with this year's festival where you left off? Because last year, basically, everything was canceled. Well, Josh, our, our last concert in front of a live audience was on March 10th, 2020, so just a little over hmm. a year ago. We gave the March Pocket Noon in the sanctuary at Central Moravian Church. The church was packed. There were, you know, eight or nine hundred people there. We had a wonderful concert, and we walked out. And it's like the next day, you know, everything was done. I mean, the the shutdown came within a week, and so we had to adapt. I mean, we had to be nimble and flexible and you know all these words that you hear we had to pivot and you know <laughs> make plans and mm-hmm. so we started doing Bahanun virtually we couldn't do anything in may for the festival we did a video one of the things we do every year is we sing a hymn tune that Bach wrote in memory of all the people who have died 
from the Bach family, former singers, former audience members, former orchestra members, soloists, and we do this piece called World Farewell. Church 
we decorated the church beautifully and this Christmas concert went out I think on December 13th and by New Year's it had been seen by about 8,000 people from 48 states the District of Columbia, Puerto Rico, and I think 18 countries around the world. Hmm. And we just got something from um, a recent Bakat Noon that went out, and this person said, I'm sending this to my missionary friends in Africa. And, you know, these, these things have just gone all over the place. It's been very interesting. So, obviously, there have been incredible challenges that have come to us, but equally wonderful opportunities. And so... I feel like the Bach Choir has, in some ways, been a leader in this effort. I mean, we've we've done, like I said, really creative things. We have videographers and audio recording people, and, you know, there's a lot of effort that goes into that. Just this week, we're finishing an educational video. We can't go into the schools with our Bach to School programs. We couldn't do our family concert this year, all because of COVID. And so we're creating an educational video that's going to be sent to all of the schools, the elementary schools in the Lehigh Valley, and further afield than that, and made available online. But this has members of the orchestra, members of the choir. We have some archival footage from our family concerts. And we're telling kids the story of Bach and his music. And I think there's a lot of creativity that has gone into this. And it's designed for music teachers, so they have four 15-minute segments in this one-hour film. It all flows from beginning to end, so you could watch the whole thing in one sitting. But for teachers who have to teach in, you know, certain time periods and, you know, they don't, they can't do like a whole one-hour video, we've designed this so it, it comes in, it can go into four sections. Bach and the dance, Bach and his life, Bach and choral music, and Bach and creativity. And so this is available to educators, you know, anywhere. And that's, I think that's another great initiative that we've taken on. And then, of course, I know we're going to run out of time, but we have our festival coming up in May, and we're doing a modified festival, and all of that will be live streamed. We can't do anything with in-person audiences. The places where we can perform will not allow in-person audiences at this point. They're only allowing a certain number of musicians in different venues. And so our festival will all be live streamed. You know, that will be another effort. And, and we have our, our distinguished scholar lecture this year is a guy from Leipzig. He's going to record his lecture in Leipzig. He's one of the great Bach scholars of the world right now, Peter Volney, and he's going to record his lecture. And I've asked him to talk about how Bach dealt with challenging circumstances in his own lifetime. Hmm. Bach dealt with a lot of adversity, and he responded to it with his incredible music making and the creation of these extraordinary works of art and so I've asked Peter to talk about that I think his talk is going to be very very inspiring and another source of comfort and hope for people so you know we're excited about that we've had to kind of reinvent ourselves and of course now going forward 
We hope to get back to doing live concerts in front of live audiences, but we'll probably continue streaming things. And you know, now when we go back to doing Bach at Noon at Central Moravian Church, we'll have a live audience there, but we'll probably also be filming it and sending it out virtually because we have listeners now you know, all over the country and all over the world. They're going to need to have some things coming their way on a regular basis going into the future. So it's all kinds of new challenges, and some <laughs> I'm sure we haven't even thought of them yet, but we keep, we keep trying to respond with as much creativity and imagination as we can. Well, it absolutely sounds like you're doing that. And to me, it's also very inspiring, you know, to, to know that an organization that's 120 plus years old is embracing technology and and for such a, a noble cause. I mean, I, I'm really happy to hear that, you know, you're still able to have the Bach to School program, which is very highly regarded and, and so important, you know, as an exposure for young children who may not otherwise ever hear classical music in their lives. That's a program that's been around for a number of years now, but it's grown. Was that your idea, the Bach to School program, or can you? Yes. Yeah, that was something we created oh, I don't, more than 15 years ago. We've presented Bach to School now for, I think, in excess of 130, 135,000 kids. Hmm all over the Lehigh Valley and beyond. Like I said, we see every third grader in Easton and Bethlehem every year, every fifth grader in Allentown every year. We do eight concerts in the schools. We take 14 members of the orchestra, a flute, two oboes, five strings, three trumpets, timpani, and keyboard. And we take anywhere from 24 to 35 singers from the choir, depending on who can volunteer their time and talent and go with us uh, into the schools, and, and the singers love doing that. I mean, that's always a, a really energizing and exciting opportunity for us. So, Do you answer questions from the kids as part of this? or? Oh yeah, that's one of the most fun things. At the end, we do Q&A with the kids, and it's so interesting to hear the questions. I mean, sometimes it's just amazing. I remember, I'll never forget one time this kid got up and said, how old do you have to be to sing in the Bach choir? You know, this little third grader, eight years old. And I thought, what a cool question. And, um, and they want to know about Bach's life. They want to know about his family, his kids. You know, I mean, it's just been incredibly moving to have this question and answer with the kids and hear what they're thinking about and how they respond to the music. It's, it's just been an amazing thing, amazing. That's fantastic. Well, we certainly want to help get the word out and, and share your live streams for this this year's festival. If we can be of assistance with that, we'll certainly be happy to, to do that. And uh, people can visit Bach.org to... Right. Can they register for notifications about the upcoming performances, like through the newsletter? Yeah, or? If, they, if they go on the website, there are all kinds of things there, bits of information, uh, a library of the moments of comfort and the Bach at Noon concerts. There's ways to register to get information. You can sign up for our YouTube channel, and they can send a message 
on Facebook or you know other social media, and members of our staff will get back in touch and answer any questions they have. And of course, you know the all important donate button is there. <laughs> if uh, people want to help make all of this possible, there is a mechanism online for donations, and of course that's always much appreciated and terribly important in uh, these challenging days. So your listeners are welcome to, to visit our website, and there's a, a wealth of information there. Great. Yeah, I would encourage everybody to do that, and certainly if you appreciate the choir and you support the arts, the local arts in particular, consider making a donation or becoming involved in some other way. There's lots of ways you can support the Bach Choir. There's so many so many other things I would love to talk to you about, but we will have to do a part two, like I said at, at the beginning with my mom, and include you too, Greg. Well, that'd be great. I'd, I'd love to, to do that with your mom and your, your grandfather at some point, or whatever is good for you, Josh. But thank you for giving me this opportunity. It's been a pleasure. And I certainly wish you a very happy spring and, you know, happy Easter coming up and take good care and stay well, okay? You as well. Thank you again for joining us. been recording No Rain Date since late 2019, and we've produced a fair number of episodes at this point. We would love to hear your feedback about what we're doing. What makes you tune in every week? What ideas do you have for interview guests? Is there something that you think the podcast is missing? Feel free to share your thoughts, whether they're good, bad, or indifferent with us. You can do that by emailing josh at josh at sockandsource.com. No Rain Date is a local news and information podcast, and we focus on the Saucon Valley. However, our guests are from the Lehigh Valley and beyond. So please try and keep that in the back of your mind when you're thinking about ideas for future episodes. Thank you. No Rain Date is an original production of Sock and Source, LLC. Our theme music is provided by This Way to the Egress. For more great music by them, be sure to follow This Way to the Egress on Spotify. Thank you for listening. Thank you.